Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So there was a fascinating piece published in The Nation titled How to Dismantle White Supremacy. It was by Barbara Smith. She's a feminist, activist, and organizer, founder of the Kumbahi, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, River Collective, and a contributor to The Nation magazine. She's also the co-author of the Black Feminist uh, Kumbahi River Collective Statement. And in 2005, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. SmithCaringCircle.com is her website, and uh, the Barbara Smith is her Twitter handle. And sure enough, she is with us right now. First of all, before we get to how to dismantle white supremacy, talk about exactly what it is and what the proportions are of this problem. By white supremacy, I'm talking about that system that really overarches and overrides almost every aspect of life in the United States because of our origin story with the taking of the land of the indigenous people, which included, of course, removal of them from their environment and also genocide, and then with chattel enslavement. That's our origin story, and that has held on for more than 400 years, and we see that in the horrific events of this spring and summer. So it's a big system that affects almost every aspect. What is the primary mythology of white supremacy? You know, obviously, supremacy implies that white people are in charge or should be in charge. You know, what would a white supremacist say, this is why I believe this? I can certainly respond to that question, but that's really not the level on which I was thinking on. Because mm -hmm. often when people think about white supremacy, they think about people who are involved in organized hate groups that often use violence to enforce their mm -hmm. beliefs. What I'm talking about right. is why a black farmer... When he applies for a loan in a state like Missouri or wherever in the Midwest, why he has to wait like 380-plus days for a loan, whereas a white farmer who applies for the same loan from the same institution only has to wait about two weeks or 30 days. How do we dismantle white supremacy? Well, my suggestion is that we need something because it's such a huge system. My suggestion is that we need something on the scale of the Marshall Plan, which, of course, was the initiative started by the United States following World War II to restore Europe in very all different ways. Everything had been dismantled and destroyed by the war. Institutions, the economy, the infrastructure. So that's what the Marshall Plan was. It was humongous. It cost billions with a B. And I think that the system of white supremacy is 
equally big and would need that kind of attention. How would that be different from reparations, or is this a description of reparations using you know, different phraseology? This is definitely not a solely a reparations plan. I mentioned mm-hmm. looking at reparations as a part of the economic initiatives, the economic solutions that would need to be deployed in order to deal with the black-white wealth gap in this country. And it's not just a black-white wealth gap other people of color, Latinx people, indigenous people also suffer that wealth gap between what their families have and what white families have as wealth, not as income, but as wealth. So reparations would be a part of it, but reparations don't address lack of quality education in inner city communities. This is much bigger. Reparations don't necessarily address what's happening with the COVID-19 epidemic with the rates of both catching the disease and dying from the disease being about twice as high among African-Americans. So this is bigger than reparations. So you're talking about major structural changes across the United States. I mean, the, the, the two principal reasons, if my reading of the literature is correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, the two principal reasons why black and Hispanic people and Native American people are more likely to get COVID and more likely to die from COVID have to do with, number one, that they're more likely to be frontline workers who can't work from home, like white collar, who are mostly white workers, can, and they tend to live in higher density housing because it's cheaper. And number two, because they're less likely to have experienced good nutrition throughout their lives, again, as a consequence of low income or living in food deserts. And the consequence of that is that they're more likely to have heart disease or diabetes or obesity, the major risk factors for death associated with COVID-19. I don't see how you respond to those things in a kind of reparations way. Here, here's, here's a $100,000 check or a $5,000 check. It seems to me that what you're talking about here, like with the Marshall Plan, is large structural change that ultimately at the end of the day will benefit everybody, but, but brings yes. up people of color. Do I have that right? You're right about that. And you uh, mentioned reparations again, just to be clear and, and uh, honest, this is not a reparations recommendation solely. That's an important discussion for the United States to have. But there's also the reality that people of color, including African Americans and, and other people who are of uh, African heritage, that they have lack of access to quality health care and may very well be underinsured or not insured at all. So the factors that you mentioned around diet, yes. But there's also the stress of living in a nation that seems to very frequently kill us for driving while black, you know, sleeping while black, being in our sure. apartments while black. That's yeah, okay, stress. that's number Those three. That's a great point, which raises another question in my mind, Barbara. We know right now that African-Americans who are in hospitals who have insurance and they're getting treatment, you know, with a white person sitting in the in the bed next to them and you know in a two-person room are less likely to get pain medication for example, probably the most glaring example because of this mythology for 400 years that black people are impervious to pain because America thought of them as beasts of burden essentially initially. I mean that was the whole point of slavery or one of them. But that's still going on, and that's going on independent of how well-funded the hospital is, how well-educated the doctors are. I mean, how do we get to this, like, core stuff? That's why I was asking, you know, the theology or the ideology of white supremacy. 
Yeah, I think that that's where, and that's not something that I wrote about very explicitly in the article that you are referring to. I wrote an earlier article, an op-ed for the Boston Globe that was published in June, where I talked about educational initiatives, having public health, public service announcements that would explain some things about what goes on in our nation and to get rid of those myths. You ask me about what do white supremacists believe, we could actually do educational initiatives to get rid of some of that, and that would include, of course, those doctors who have those really inaccurate beliefs about black people's uh, bodies. Yeah, and I don't think that they're even conscious of their beliefs. That's how insidious this is. What do you think? Yes, yes. Thank you for having read that study that I did, which did huge survey of, I think, new doctors, like early in their career. In other words, not people who lived through Jim Crow and have those kinds of experiences of segregation. And even they, the younger doctors, beginning their careers, had those myths. Barbara Smith, the website smithcaringcircle.com, her Twitter handle, The Barbara Smith, and her new article in the Nation magazine, How to Dismantle White Supremacy. Barbara, thanks for dropping by. This Thank you so much, Tom. Tom Hartman Program. Great talking with you. As probably most of you know, I lived in Germany for a year. I speak clumsily, but I speak German. And when I was living in Germany, I was uh, living just down the road from an old friend of mine, literally old. He actually passed away a few years ago who had been a soldier in Hitler's army. He was drafted. He was made an intelligence officer because he spoke seven languages. He was parachuted into what was then called Kurdistan. It's now part of Iran and was arrested there and imprisoned throughout the war and became a vegetarian as a result of that experience, kind of, you know, basically trying to make a deal with God and, and came back from the war, committed to doing good works in the world and started communities for orphaned kids all around the world. His name was Gottfried Mueller. And he introduced me, or I got to know, a number of elderly Germans as a result of my association with Mr. Mueller, including one who was still of the opinion that Adolf Hitler, his biggest mistake, was invading Russia a year too early before he was ready. My friend was not still a Nazi. He was horrified by the Nazis and spent his entire life doing penance, basically. But this guy that I met was still a Nazi, was proud of it. And a little later on, a year or so after that, that we, we, we lived in Germany the uh, year of 87, 88. And a couple of years later, myself and a friend of mine by the name of Scott Berg first went to Austria and met with the Prince of Liechtenstein, Prince Alfred, and then met with a fellow who literally wrote the book on the religion of the Nazis. In the course of that, we went to Wevelsburg, which was going to be Hitler's new Vatican. It's a city that was entirely taken over by the SS. We visited this SS cemetery that is immaculately kept, fresh flowers every single day. I mean, in fact, driving into town, one of the houses had skulls and uh, bones around the door. These are people who take their Nazism very seriously. We encountered a small group of elderly Nazis with black candles sitting on bales of hay, you know, in this giant room attached to a restaurant that we were eating at. When they discovered that I had looked in that room, they, they kicked us out of the restaurant. And, uh, you know, we're very freaked out. So, you know, I have some familiarity with the Nazis, having known real Nazis and having been there and 
And one of the things that consistently in talking with people that I knew who were Nazis or who had been Nazis, and I'm talking real German Nazis now. This was back in the 80s. These people were in their 60s then. And one of the things that I know is that one of their major influences was a booklet that was published in 1902 in Russia. It was written by the Russian secret police on behalf of Tsar Nicholas II, because Nicholas was of the opinion, Nicholas was, you know, he wasn't a particularly good Tsar king of Russia. He was a kleptocrat. He wanted everything. Some of the institutions of Russia, particularly the banking institutions, were pushing back on some of the things he was doing. And so he had this thing drafted, it was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that said that Jews were trying to undermine and destroy Russia from within. And that what they did on the high Jewish holy holidays, and we're heading toward one right now, they would literally drink the blood or drain the blood from children from non-Jewish children, from white children, and use that blood to make matzah. Use it to make the unleavened bread that you would eat around uh, Passover ceremonies and things like that. And then Hitler came to power, and in Mein Kampf, he references this. He actually commissioned a children's book that was a children's version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and had it distributed to every school in Germany. You know, I had conversations with my friend Armin Lehman about this, who was the 15-year-old courier who brought Hitler the news that the war was lost and was there when Hitler committed suicide. Armin wrote a book about it. I've talked about this before. Armin's been on my show. Armin's dead now, but back, you know, more than a decade ago, he was, he was on my show many times talking about these issues. And the kids believed it. Everybody believed it. They believed that the Jews were a cult that stole and abused including killing white children. So Gregory Stanton published a piece in JustSecurity.org that I tweeted over the weekend. You can find it on my Twitter timeline if you're looking for that particular story, or you can just Google it. It's titled, QAnon is a Nazi cult rebranded. And he starts out saying, a secret cabal is taking over the world. They kidnap children, slaughter and eat them to gain power from their blood. They control high positions in government, banks, international finance, the news media, and the church. They want to disarm the police. They promote homosexuality and pedophilia. They plan to mongrelize the white race so it will lose its essential power. And then he said, does that sound familiar? This is pretty much the story that you get from QAnon right now. He said it was called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was written by Russian anti-Jewish propagandists around 1902. Central to his mythology was the blood libel, which claimed that Jews kidnapped and slaughtered Christian children and drained their blood to mix in the dough for matzahs consumed on Jewish holidays. The Nazis published a children's book of the protocol. You know, and he goes through the whole thing. And then he goes through the history of this. And now you've got... QAnon saying that the Jewish billionaire George Soros and Jews who control the media, you know, they'll point out, you know, hey, Wolf Blitzer's Jewish, didn't you know that? That kind of stuff. This is QAnon, and they're saying, oh, people want open borders so that brown children can invade America and mongrelize the white race. This is part of the story of, of QAnon. The so-called deep state is largely the Jewish deep state. And now in Germany, as he pointed out in Just Security, over 200,000 of the new Nazis, the neo-Nazis, 
have now taken the QAnon pledge. They've embraced this. He says, in the 30s, millions of Europeans were unemployed. Violent battles between Nazis and communists raged in city streets. Democratic governments were powerless. And today, the American people suffer from a plague. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Angry mobs roam American cities and battle militarized police and heavily armed militias. The American government seems paralyzed. Dictators rule Russia and China. Islamic fascists rule Saudi Arabia and the old Ottoman and Persian empires. The American president appeases Russia, scapegoats China, and looks the other way as Putin and bin Salman murder their opponents. Now, there have been a few Republicans who have called this out. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, Ben Sass have all said, no, wait a minute, we don't want that. But how did a Nazi cult get rebranded and have this much power and influence in America? This is amazing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And now Donald Trump is coming out saying that the state should be able to simply kill people without any judicial process. Just shoot them down. So two uh, interesting little stories here that I think kind of a butt. Down in Los Angeles, there was a guy who walked up to a police car and shot two uh, L.A. sheriff's office, L.A. County sheriff's officers, um, and, uh, you know, apparently trying to kill them. Uh, Both of them are in the hospital. It looks like both of them are going to survive, but we have no idea how badly damaged they're going to be, and uh, odds are probably pretty badly. Um, So, you know, keep them in your thoughts or prayers or whatever, whatever. But that crime was compounded by a tweet from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, L-A-S-D-H-Q, the L.A. County Sheriff's Headquarters. This is their Twitter handle, is at L-A-S-D-H-Q, that said, and I quote, to the protesters blocking the entrance and exit of the hospital emergency room yelling, we hope they die, referring to two L.A. sheriffs ambushed today in Compton, Do not block emergency entries and exits to the hospital. People's lives are at stake when ambulances can't get through. Now, that's pretty alarming, right? People trying to prevent the sheriff's deputies from getting treated in the hospital and shouting, we hope they die. The uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department has gone silent on this now because it turns out Video has emerged. Who realized that they had, you know, surveillance cameras in hospital emergency rooms and parking lots and that people might have even shown up with cell phone cameras? And there was no crowd and nobody was chanting, we hope they die, and nobody was blocking the exits or the entrances. And it was just a lie. Sort of like the blood libel lie, like, you know, uh, oh, yeah, there are children in Comet Pizza or whatever it is in Washington, D.C., and eventually they're going to take their blood, and, and they're using them in satanic rituals. I mean, all, all, these lies coming out of the right wing, and now the right wing infecting our police departments, this should really concern us, but I think that's something that should concern us even more is, you know, we talk about that one great leap. I've shared with you many times over the years. I mean, going back to 2003, I think, was the first time I read on the air from Milton Mayer's book, They Thought They Were Free, where he went to Germany in the 1950s after World War II. He was a reporter for one of the Chicago newspapers. 
and he went to Germany and he, he spent a whole year there. He, he spent time with and lived with, in part, uh, 10 different, uh, quote, good Germans. These were Germans who were not, not Nazis, not members of the party. Uh, they all held a job throughout the war. Uh, there was a bricklayer, there was a baker, there was a college professor. There's just a bunch of people, average Germans, and said to them, basically, how could you have not known what was going on? And most of them, of course, ultimately came to know what was going on. But the one, the one uh, quote that really stuck with me was where the guy said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this one from memory, um, but it's easy enough to, you know, I mean, just Google my name and they thought they were free or Milton Mayer and you'll find, you know, all my excerpts and quotes. And I've, I've written about this many times. Um, but I believe this was the college professor. He said, you keep waiting for the one great shocking event the one that you think is going to cause people to rise up and say, no, you must stop. He said, but that one great shocking event never comes. He says, if they were gassing the Jews the week after they had put the signs, you know, Christian-owned or German-owned business in the windows, then yes, people would have been out in the streets. But that's not how it works. He said, instead, step one, step A leads to step B, and B wasn't so terrible, and so you don't say anything. And then B leads to C, and C, you know, it's getting worse, but it's still, you know, but you didn't yell at B, so why are you going to yell at C, and then to D, and E, and F, and so on? And he says, and one day, you realize that everything has changed, and yet everything looks the same. One of, the, one of the thresholds that the Germans crossed in the mid-1930s, and I would suggest that this probably was 36, 37, 38, somewhere in there. I'd have to go back and reread uh, William Shearer's um, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. But the Night of the Long Knives was when Hitler actually had his political opponents assassinated, including people inside his government. Kristallnacht, which happened, I think, a year or so earlier, was when Nazi thugs went out and shattered the windows of German businesses. But the transition point, this, this transformation point, was when it came, became not just okay to imprison people, but actually to kill people because you viewed them as an enemy of the state without judicial process. You could kill them without charging them with a crime, without holding a trial, without sentencing them to death. You simply have your police kill them. And here in Portland, this guy, Michael Forrest Reinel, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, killed one of the, proud, uh, one of the uh, Patriot Prayer guys, one of the right-wingers here. Not a good thing. Nobody just, you know, killing people, terrible. But the police did not attempt to arrest him. Instead, he came walking out of this house that he had been hiding out in after he did an interview with Vice News in which he said that he shot this guy in self-defense. That was going to be his, his, his uh, argument in court. He came walking out. He had a cell phone in one hand and a gummy bear, or a gummy worm in the other that he was chewing on. And they just opened fire, like 30, 40, 50 bullets, and assassinated him. And Trump was asked about this over the weekend, and he said, and I quote, I will tell you something, that's the way it has to be. There has to be retribution when you have a crime like this. Really. You assassinate people. Retribution. You 
and it was these were federal police who were shooting, who answered to Trump. Did he say to them, assassinate this guy? And if so, who might be the next person that Trump directs his federal police to assassinate? Have we started down this road? And if he gets reelected or if he can hold on to power past January 20th, what does that mean for the future of this country? You're listening we'll to back. the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. 28 minutes past the hour. We'll be shortly. We'll be back with your calls in just a minute. And just to add to this, Trump saying to Bob Woodward about race, you know, Bob Woodward said, you know, you and I are both about the same age. We're both wealthy guys. You know, Woodward's not a billionaire, obviously. Well, frankly, neither is Trump. But basically, you know, we're both wealthy white guys. What are your thoughts, Donald Trump, on, he didn't use the word plight, but the situation, whatever, the, forget the exact word he used, but whatever it may be, of Black people, in particular, people of color in the United States who are facing discrimination and hate and all this kind of stuff on a daily basis. And Trump's response is, wow, Bob, you really drank the Kool-Aid. Really? In other words, Trump is trying to say, well, there's no real race problem in America. Everything's good. This is the BS that the Republicans, the racist Republicans have been trying to sell us, well, basically since Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater was like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, opposed to black people moving in next door to me. I just think that states should have the power to make it illegal. It's like, you know, it's about states' rights, don't you know? It's not about race. And, uh, you know, and truth be told, there were, you know, that was characterized in the American media as a principled stand back in 1964. But anyhow, Trump just tweeted just a few minutes ago, he tweeted, the Democrats never even mentioned the words law and order at their national convention. That's where they're coming from. If I don't win, now he, the next two words are not here in this tweet, but they should be. And those two words should be white people. If I don't win, white people, America's suburbs will be overrun, that word in all caps, with low income projects. What does that mean? Black people. Anarchists, agitators, looters, and of course, quote, friendly protesters, close quote. This is like George Wallace. For example, I was just talking about Michael Caputo. Yesterday, he was complaining that he's under siege by the media. This is the guy who is the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs for HHS. He's the old conspiracy nut that Donald Trump put in charge of basically publicity for the Department of Health and Human Services, which supervises the Centers for Disease Control, which he has basically been undermining. Well, over the weekend, he retweeted this, that armed camps are being established around Washington, D.C., and this is what they said, quote, occupants don't look like vagrants. They look like forward basing for military street operations by Democrats. Really? This is how protocols of the elders of Zion and this kind of, uh, and now QAnon, this kind of death cult propaganda sucks people in. You know, if you reached out to people and said, 
you should go kill somebody. 99.999% of people would say, what, are you crazy? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to kill somebody. Or if you just reached out to people and said, you know, you should go beat up those people over there. No, why? Come on. Most people are not violent. Most people are not killers. In fact, it's so rare that we're fascinated by it. It's why, you know, TV dramas usually have a murderer as their MacGuffin, as their plot device. Because it's so rare that it's fascinating. But, you know, it takes a lot to motivate somebody to kill somebody. You can offer them money. Most people will turn down money. Here's $100,000. Just kill so-and-so. No, I won't do it. How about a million dollars? Still won't do it. It's really hard. With one exception. The one thing that will cause people to kill quickly, reflexively, and enthusiastically is fear. It is the one emotion that can spark murder, that consistently will spark violence. So when you say those people over there are coming to get you and your family, which is what white racists have been saying about black people for centuries, which is why black people keep getting killed and lynched by white people, you can motivate people to murder fairly easily. And you go back and you look at some of the pictures of those old lynchings, and there's like a hundred white people standing there going, yeah, yeah, look at this. Because they perceived a threat. Because some demagogue told them, look out. They're starting to, they're coming to get you. Now, obviously, it wasn't always that that was the motivating factor in a lynching. For a lot of cases, there's just plain old racial hatred, just pure evil. But I would propose that probably the vast majority of people who just get swept up in this kind of stuff are doing so out of fear. And this is why, you know, back in the, in the early part of the 20th century, the sales pitch by white racists was black people want to take your job. And what then, then they're going to name, move into your neighborhood and then they're going to rape your daughter or your wife. We were sold fear. And here you have the head of communications for Health and Human Services saying that a homeless camp is a forward positioning effort by Democrats who are going to do an armed insurrection, presumably to kick Donald Trump out of the White House on January 20th. Are you getting how dangerous this is? The whole QAnon thing that, oh, it's not Jews this time who are going after children. It's immigrants, it's black people, it's liberals. Think about it for a minute. Think how, this, these are shockingly serious times. And I don't think that our media is taking this stuff anywhere near seriously enough. Rich in Indianapolis. Hey, Rich, what's up? I haven't been able to talk to you for more than a year. I'm homeless now. But I'm on the ground in Indiana, and what I see and what I experience boils my blood because it's the white supremacy. And these people are monsters. I want to make sure that people understand how darn dangerous this aspect of American culture is. And it's been in the news recently where the whistleblower said that he had had to dumb down reports so as not to make the president look bad about white supremacy. Here in Indiana, 
white supremacy is so toxic and so present. And there are just Stockholm supporters that don't do anything about it. The problem, Rich, is that there is this whole alternative reality that the Republicans have wrapped themselves in. There really is, literally, uh, this worldview that the billionaires have been promoting, and it's you know flowing now into Facebook and into all these right-wing sites and things you know that causes people on the right to think that people on the left are actually you know actually hate America and are are opposed to American values and things like that, which you know obviously is not the case, but it's pretty tragic. Julia in Chicago. Hey, Julia. Thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Hey, Tom, thank you for being there. I just wanted to make the comment that you were asking, how did we get here again so soon after World War II with the Nazis and everything else? And how is Germany succumbing to these people retaking Nazi vows and such? And I believe that there, if William Barr had done his GD job whenever it was discovered that we were under a cyber attack, Democracy is under cyber attack. They are targeting specific groups. So naturally, the same extremist right propaganda farms that are targeting America are targeting every other functioning democracy on the planet, and that includes Germany. In addition to that, they are targeting our police department and filling them with hatred. And we don't think this is all just happening, do we? These cops are being trolled. And in the same way that Facebook finally just took down over 800 fake Black Lives Matter groups that were trying to get young black kids to go out and commit acts of violence. These are trolls who are there to kill us from our computers right in our homes and i just wanted to make that comment like can we talk about the real problem we are at war and the world is at war Uh, hungary has fallen poland has fallen great britain has fallen america has fallen we are going down people democracy is going down i'm not being hysterical this is happening right no democracy is on the ballot right in front of us you're absolutely right julia pray to god Actually, I do pray for my country frequently, Julie, and I think we all need to, or at least those, the, you know, if you believe in prayer, if you don't believe in prayer, then send some light or something, but whatever. Right, we, you know, the, it's, collective, uh, the collective soul of humanity, you know, we are going to have to really wake up and really realize what is happening. They're targeting specific groups. They are going after specific groups. Hitler needed the police in Germany to commit his crimes for him in the same way you just described William Barr sending a hit squad to murder this kid who wasn't even charged with a crime yet. They yeah. just went Although and it's fairly clear that he was a killer. But but yes, he assa- they, they assassinated him and then Trump justified it and he did it more than once. And that, I think, is a turning point. That is a stepping over the line that I never thought I would see in America. And I am shocked that the, it's not a leading headline all over the country. You know, Trump uh, endorses extrajudicial assassination. It's mind boggling. Julia, thank you for the call. Your points are all very well made. Rudy in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Rudy, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to mention, according to the 2007 Wikipedia, more than half of all white supremacists in the world lived in Russia. 
And on top of that, a little over two years ago, on July 4th, there were eight lawmakers that spent the 4th of July in Moscow. And one of them happened yes, to be Ron Johnson. as I recall. You're right. And one of them is Ron Johnson, who now happens to be using a bunch of propaganda against Biden. Yeah. If I was inclined to go all Joe McCarthy, there's certainly fertile ground for that. I'm, I'm not inclined to and I'm not going to go there. But I would like somebody to start asking those Republican senators, Rand Paul and Ron Johnson and the rest of them, you know, when you went to Russia for the 4th of July, why and what happened? But I don't think it's just Russia either. I think that we've got, a, you know, there's a whole coalition of basically countries that don't want democracy. They don't want it in their country, and they frankly don't want it in our country because we pester people about it. Although that stopped four years ago. Rudy, by the way, with regard to Wikipedia, Wikipedia is not an authoritative source for anything. Double check everything you see. You know, there may be people who have joined groups or clubs or whatever in Russia who constitute half of what we know of, but. I'm telling you, white supremacy has, it was the founding religion of this country. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Yeah, and I wouldn't doubt QAnon also comes out of Russia, but yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, okay. But it appears that QAnon came from the guy who started one of the uh, one of the message boards. You know, they, they outed the guy a couple of days ago, and there's been, you know, basically no coverage of that either. Maybe it just hasn't been nailed down completely yet. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Rudy in Atlanta. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind? Let, let me ask you this silly question, Tom. Wouldn't you want to fall on the score for someone that had better qualities than Donald Trump? If I was going to hang my hat on someone, fall on the score for someone, it sure as hell won't be Donald Trump. I don't understand it, Tom. Yeah, well, Rudy, you've heard the old saying, he may be an SOB, but he's my SOB or our SOB. I think that that's, you know, they've adapted themselves to this. You've got now Christians who are saying, well, he's like King Cyrus of Persia. Well, King Cyrus of Persia was a bad guy who was not Jewish or Christian or anything, but he, he gave the Jews a little bit of shelter for a short while, and therefore he was viewed as a hero. And so there, you've got these evangelical Christians saying, in Google us, you know, that he's King Cyrus. He's the reincarnation of King Cyrus. Yeah, he may not be a Christian. Yeah, he may be a terrible guy. Yeah, he had affairs on all three of his wives. Um, yeah, he, you know, he steals money. He ripped off his father and his family. Um, you know, the, the guy is awful, but he's on our side. He's part of our tribe. He's going to protect our tax-exempt status, which is, you know, what the people like Jerry Falwell are concerned about because that's how they become multimillionaires. So there's that tribal aspect again. And, you know, like I said, I think that the largest part of this is white. I I am not hearing 
people who are not white making these kinds of defenses of Donald Trump, number one. And number two, you've got some people who think that, you know, he's a big boon to Christianity because he's going to protect the tax-exempt status of churches, even when they break the law and engage in politics. And, you know, they're all excited about that. I'm not sure that there's any other tribal affiliation for Trump, you know, other than the grifters and the criminals, and, and they're very few in number, Rudy. What's happening is not a new thing in American politics. In fact, I think that probably if we were to step in a time machine and go back to Civil War times, we would find the same sorts of... But you don't have to go that far back. Herbert Hoover got 40% of the vote when he ran against Franklin Roosevelt. In fact, more than 40%, as I recall. You know, I think this is a tribal thing. I think that there is this sense of Donald Trump is a member of my tribe. Donald Trump represents my tribe. Tribalism is an extension of familyism, right? We are wired, as are all social animals, particularly social mammals, to defend family first and then community, local community, tribe, clan, you know, whatever you may call it. And the question you have to ask then, Rudy, is if that's the case... If these people feel so solidly identified with Trump and his people and, you know, basically the, the, the Republican Party that supports him because they feel a tribal identity with him, what is the core nature of that tribal identity? And I would submit to you that it, it's all about being white. Am I missing something here? I don't know, Tom. The little hair I have on my head, it's, it's about going. I've I, I, given up. Because I've heard enough, man, and people that you would think were logical people that you could rationalize with, I just don't talk to them. See, I think that there's a real tragedy unfolding right in front of us. And we just saw, you know, the example of that. And that is that the lies that are being promoted in the United States by Donald Trump and the people around him, and frankly by foreign actors who are extremely active right now on Facebook in particular and also on Twitter, Those lies are being believed, and they're being believed by Americans who may, in many cases, have the very best of intentions. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's up? I think Trump initially ran because he knew that he could grab all that money if he lost, and he didn't try very hard to get elected. He got pushed into it because Putin saw a weak guy was easily BSed about money and I'm going to make you a trillionaire, Donnie. And I think that's the whole reason he's there. And he's following Putin's lead because Putin is going to make him rich. That's what he thinks. Yeah. And Putin wants well, Michael Cohen lays reason. it out, Bruce. Michael Cohen comes right out in his new book, uh, Disloyal, and says for Trump, this was the largest branding exercise in the history of the world. All Donald Trump wanted to do was get the name Trump out there to increase the prestige and status of Trump properties and Trump hotels and Trump anything else he could sell, you know, steaks or vodka or or airlines or whatever. And so he thought, hey, if I run for president, that'll get my name all over the place, all over the world. And he was at the time trying to cut a deal with Russia and with Putin to build what would be his largest project ever, you know, probably a billion dollar property, the Trump Tower Moscow. He was working on that right up to Election Day. Uh, and lying to us all about it. And there's ample evidence of that. Yeah, I am totally with you, Bruce. And and I don't think that his reasons and his motives were anything close to uh, reasonable or pure or whatever the word would be. Rosetta in Beaverton, Oregon. Hey, Rosetta, I hope you're staying safe. The fires are just a little bit south of you. 
Yeah, the air quality is not good, but we're staying in the house. I'm calling today in order to talk about why Trump supporters voted for him in the past and why they will probably vote for him in the future and why nothing anybody says, no matter how many lies or, as Trump says, he could shoot somebody in the road, they will still vote for him. The reason for that is because the Heritage Foundation basically gave him a list of judges, and Trump is appointing 250 judges that they want. And it doesn't matter who he is, because he'll be gone in a short time, but the judges will live on for 40 years. You're you're absolutely right, Rosetta. Although it was the Federalist Society, not the Heritage Foundation, but but oh, you know they're sorry. they're kind of twins. They were both funded by money from the Koch Network and other right wing billionaires and right wing foundations. So yeah, yeah, good point. And I think you're right. I, I I think that you know the judiciary is extraordinarily powerful. It is right now. It's the judiciary in Wisconsin that's holding up the the mailing of mail in ballots, and I believe it's the judiciary in Pennsylvania that's doing the same thing. I could be wrong on that, but yeah, this is potent and dangerous stuff. Rosetta, thank you. Thank you for the call, and thanks for pointing that out. It's a really important piece of the puzzle. Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's up? I'm here in North Carolina, and you know we're split down the middle, you know, half and half, and it's just like, I don't understand why anybody at this point is supporting this guy. Yeah, it astonishes me. As far as I can tell, Kevin... The only reason why anybody is still supporting Donald Trump, there's basically two groups. There's the very, very rich people who are very happy with all of his economic policies, basically screw the worker policies. Uh, A few hundred thousand people who have an income of a million bucks or more, maybe a couple hundred thousand people, maybe even a million people whose income is above, say, 300,000 a year. And then you've got white people who are either afraid of or hate black people, Hispanics, Muslims, fill in the blanks for the minority group, gay people, trans people, you know, all the folks that Donald Trump has gone after. And he's got a coalition of basically racists and rich people. And I don't think that there's enough racists and rich people in this country to elect a president, but we'll see. I think a lot of people got duped in 2016. Hopefully it won't be, you know, fool me twice, uh, shame on me. Kevin, thank you for the call. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's up? Nazadrobia, comrade, is another glorious day in Trumpistan, is it not? There you go. It is. Indeed it is. What's hey, up? I, I just concerned that uh, running up to uh, November, we're not paying enough attention to agent provocateurs. I don't know if you caught it or uh, one of your, your uh, staff caught it, but Lincoln Project did a great video on 9-11. That's nice. But the top comment on that gives a long list of all the different uh, agent provocateur instances that they have run across, some very, very recently. So I think I'm going to compile it, put it into an article for the local paper, and then I might uh, tweet it to you there, Mr. Hartman. Please do so, Chaz. I would love to see that. I mean, you know, this is this and, is a uh, real issue, and it's a, it's a real problem, actually. We're seeing it no here question. in Portland. Mike, when it comes time for uh, Trump to leave office, I don't think he's going to be hanging around with legal troubles. And I think this guy is going to be on a jet to Moscow while Joe Biden is doing his uh, swearing-in inauguration. I think that's entirely possible. You know, somehow he's going he's gonna to weasel his way out of this. And, yeah, I mean, time will tell. But I think that... You know, I don't know. Melania has maintained her Slovenian uh, citizenship and even acquired Slovenian citizenship for their son, Baron. So uh, at, at least according to news reports that I've read. So maybe that's where they're going to end up. Who knows?
although they did slip her parents in. You know, she's the uh, anchor baby, I guess, or her, her son is. Mark Taylor Canfield's on the line from Seattle. Mark, you've got an update on what's going on in Seattle? Yeah, Tom, a lot has happened since I talked to you last. We have a new police chief, Adrian Diaz. After Carmen Best resigned and over 15,000 complaints filed against the Seattle Police Department. But it doesn't seem like the police have backed off one bit from confronting protesters because they arrested 27 people on Labor Day at a demonstration outside of the Seattle Police Guild office, the headquarters there. And also, the, some insurance companies are now threatening to downgrade Seattle's insurability rating because of so many lawsuits against the Seattle Police Department and the city. So it's an economic and also a legal liability. And yet, amid all of this, Tom, it's hard to believe, but even amidst this and in the middle of a recall campaign against Mayor Jenny Durkin, she actually vetoed the Seattle City Council's budget cuts and personnel cuts to the Seattle Police Department. So she's standing firm as supporting the police no matter what. Uh, She's not going to back down. She's become a very recalcitrant uh, person uh, here in terms of civil rights and police reform. And it's really sad to see that considering that she ran on a very progressive agenda and during her campaign, but she's being challenged next year in 2021, and um, I don't think she's looking very popular right now. We also have some problems with the Washington. So, Mark, I have a question for you, because we're 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 confronting similar situations here in Oregon, and I don't want to ever turn my show into a just a Seattle and Portland show. But, uh, you know, I guess we're kind of stuck with this for a minute. If people are showing up in Seattle and they're committing property damage, they're committing crimes. What should the police do? They should be prosecuted, but what's happening is that our city attorney... So they should arrest those people? Yeah. So are they not arresting those people? Well, actually, there have been incidences where there's been, you know, there was a a fire at a construction site for the new youth detention center, and there were no police to be seen when that was happening. So, yeah, there have been, there has been, there have been... I'm very concerned that we've got people who are like either, hey, it's fun, let's go light some fires, or there may be a significant element of right-wing provocateurs in here. And frankly, I would like to see some of, the, some of these folks being arrested and, and let's, let's f- Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Find out, you know, what's going on, who's doing this, and what can be done about it. We, speaking of, you know, like, you know, the city of Portland, the city of Seattle, as long as, you know, property damage and great footage for Fox News and Donald Trump advertisements continues being produced every single night, we're going to have a hell of a challenge and we're going to be losing more and more support among average voters. So, you know, it's a tough one, Mark. It's a real tough one. So Donald Trump tweeted a a white power message warning white people in the suburbs that people from low-income projects were going to be moving into their neighborhood and they would be looting. Honest to God, he just tweeted this. 
The guy who said to Bob Woodward, oh, Bob, you're drinking the Kool-Aid if you think black people have it rough in America. He just tweeted, the Democrats never even mentioned the words law and order at their national convention. That's where they're coming from. If I don't win America's suburbs, that would be, you know, America's white suburbs, because we have lots of black suburbs in this country now, too. America's suburbs will be overrun with low-income projects, anarchists, agitators, looters, and, of course, friendly protesters. This is the guy who lied to us for, what, seven months about the coronavirus? And now is telling us that the reason he lied to us was not so that he could, you know, get all the way to election day without having to deal with a crisis, which obviously is what he thought he was doing. But instead, because he was not trying, he was trying not to panic people. I don't want to panic people. But look out, black people are coming to the white suburbs. D in Chicago. Hey, D, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for everything. For the angry racists out there, I have a possible solution. Take two African-American women and two whites in a room and let us disrobe. You will find there are no extra legs or arms. If you hate us so much, please don't buy refrigerated food or use a light bulb or use shoes or even have open heart surgery because there are blacks in that and hundreds more. Every life matters. Every life matters, but blacks are not lazy. We have contributed so much. Thank you. Oh, black people built this country, D. That won't be recognized. Thank you so much. Well, I think, I think it needs on. to be said more often. I, you know, I really got that when I lived in Washington, D.C. I went, you know, I had been in the White House a number of times. It was built by slave labor. Half the buildings, maybe three quarters or four fifths of the buildings in D.C., certainly the, the ones that predate the Civil War were built with slave labor. You know, the Capitol building, among others. And, and it's not just D.C. I mean, you know, this is all of America. The, the, the money that drove New York, not a slave state, came from the sale of cotton through the New York banks. And the cotton was coming from slave labor in the South. It was our major crop up until the 1870s, 1880s. So, yes, spot on. D, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Amen. Raj in Detroit. Hey, I was just talking to your lieutenant governor. What's up? The racism that we speak about is clearly coming directly from the White House and his administration is clearly supporting white supremacists. They sent white supremacists to our Capitol building with guns. And they stood straight in front of our state police, yelling in their face without masks for the coronavirus, and there was no attempt to disarm or assault these people. Two weeks later, Black Lives Matter movement came to address the racial disparities unarmed, and we were attacked by the state police, the same very state police that were just assaulted by members of uh, armed militia. What Mm -hmm. can we do in this state, which you came from before? And you know how it is in the state of Michigan as far as the ratio of blacks and whites. They outnumber us, they outweapon us, and now they are being allowed to hurt and harm us through the police. The bottom line here is leadership, Raj. You you can see this in country after country after country. When you have leadership that is, you know, noble and good and, and aspirational and tries to lift everybody up and make the country a better place, then generally speaking, the country gets lifted up and made a better place. When you've got a leader who's 
principal mission is to tear people apart, to pit people against each other, who has literally spent his entire life as a racist con man. And one of the most effective cons that he has always run is when he gets people opposing him, whether it's in business or in politics, causing them to get into a debate or a fight or, or whatever with somebody else over something that has nothing to do with his con job so that he can distract people. That's what he does. You know, the solution to this, obviously, you know, racism is deep and embedded and structural. And there's a, you know, a whole other conversation there about how do you pull up the weeds of racism that have grown in your society. But, uh, you know, the, over the short term, the solution is to get that you know, fulminating racist out of the White House. And, uh, you know, that's just, you know, step one. And that's what we got to do. Raj, thanks for the call. And be sure to show up in November. On, on November 3rd, flush the, you know what, Deborah in Columbia, Tennessee. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? You know, Trump is outed every other day with a new crime. And I live in Tennessee. A lot of my family and friends and neighbors are Trump supporters. We have discussions and there's absolutely nothing, nothing I can say that sways them. And I want to know, what do you believe that would push Trump supporters over the edge? I don't even think his taxes being released and it's showing that he's been in bed with Putin. I don't think that would do it because I don't think they think for themselves anymore. What I think is they would immediately go to Fox or the right-wing news source and see what they were saying and how they should be feeling about this and how they were going to spin it. So that's my rant. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. And excellent points all. I told the story earlier of 1988 or 1987. I was living in Germany. Actually, it was 1979, the first time I met this guy. 1979, I met a guy who was a Nazi, an actual believer that Hitler was the right thing. He was exactly what Germany needed. 40 years? No, in the late 70s, it would have been a little more than 30 years after the war. He had seen the movies. He had seen the the liberation of uh, Dachau and Auschwitz. He knew exactly what had happened, and he was still a Nazi. I mean, there are people who are just like, they're in, this is like permeated their souls. And I'm not sure, you know, I think for many of them, there's nothing you can do. Now, that said, the other thing that I learned when I got to know a bunch of elderly Germans, and I got to know a lot of them, dozens and dozens of them, that I knew well, I met far more than that, who were horrified by what happened during the war, was that the cult was broken when the war was over, when the Nazis were defeated. And the same thing was true in Japan. It took defeat to break the cult. And I think that there's a very real possibility that if Donald Trump is soundly defeated, and that's step one, and then step two, all the crimes that were committed during the four years of Trump's administration, whether they're actual legal crimes or they're merely crimes against democracy, right, rolling back environmental protections to speed up global warming, which is fueling these forest fires that we're dealing with here in Oregon, the reason why my throat is so sore right now and it's hard to breathe. And people are dead. You know, if the Biden administration can do a good job of telling Americans and the world, but telling Americans what happened, all the stuff that happened that never got publicized, You know, I mean, a lot of it got talked about on this program, but the average American has no idea 
how badly this country has basically been raped and pillaged by all the lobbyists that Donald Trump put in charge of virtually every federal agency. The predators that he put in charge. If the Biden administration, if Joe Biden wins and that administration can basically wake America up the way that the United States did and the United Kingdom did, and we actually had Hollywood helped us out in this, right? And anybody in Hollywood, I know, you know, we're on the air in Los Angeles. Anybody listening, hey, this is the time to make those kind of movies like we made after World War II, saying, here's what happened in Auschwitz. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Whatever. We need to wake America up. And that has the potential to break the hold of the cult. I don't see anything else doing. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And voting is not enough. I mean, yes, of course, get re- make sure you're registered to vote. Go to IWillVote.com. Do it. But beyond that, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Stay safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 